I met my first wife at seminary. I say first wife because we weren't married very long at all. We had uh, what I've heard some psychologists call a training wheels marriage. (laughs) It fits. It was like preparation for adult life. But it really wasn't an adult marriage. It's fine. Good person. She's actually a colleague of mine. Just weren't intended to be married to each other. Now, my first wife was a person of African-American descent. And the seminary that we went to was one of the most uh, diverse, racially diverse learning environments in which I had ever been and ever was. And it was a student population and a faculty that regularly engaged questions of power, privilege, race, racism, particularly here in the United States. A lot of awareness there. One of the things I became aware of, I would say after we had been dating for about three or four months, is that it happened more than once, I would say, what's a bunch of times, four or five times. A number of the African-American women on campus started to call me brother. I remember one time particularly when my ex-wife and I were standing in the quad, and a black woman, a particular friend of hers, came up and first put her arm around my ex-wife, and then put her arm around me, and looked me square in the eye, and she said, thank you for loving this sister. Thank you for loving this sister. I felt really good about myself. (laughs) I felt like, I got it. Whatever it was to get, I got it. But I didn't. This is not me as a hero story. I was a deeply insecure person in my mid to late 20s. I felt uncomfortable about a lot of things. Race was one of them. And so, you know, being called brother having my commitments praised as something worthy, as something that was deemed enlightened even, I felt, you know what? I'm a good guy. I don't need to engage those deeper conversations around race and racism and power and identity and privilege. And so on a campus in which these conversations were happening regularly, I opted out. I abstained. Because of that, I missed an opportunity to grow. I missed an opportunity to inhabit that space of being uncomfortable and engaging, leaning in, as some call it. Now, today's Spirit Flicks movie is all about race and racism and identity and power and privilege in an academic context on campus. This movie, Dear White People, is particularly about a small group of African-American students on and in a historically white campus, an elite learning institution. Now, this movie particularly revolves around these two characters, Samantha White and Lionel Higgins. Samantha White is known on campus 
in this movie as one of the most radical student activists. And at the same time, she's also secretly dating a white man and is actually biracial herself. And she's really struggling internally with how she holds these seeming contradictions together. Lionel Higgins, who, from what I understand it, has the personal identity most similar to the guy who made this movie. He is an incredible brainiac. He loved comic books. He's gay. He doesn't know where he fits in on campus. He doesn't know whose identity he matches up with. Now, this movie is a satire. It's intentionally provocative. It is funny and at times surprisingly warm-hearted. And the filmmaker spends even more time satirizing the relations uh, between the races as he does satirizing the time in which he talks about the difficulty of the relationships within the black student population. This is also an incredibly serious movie. The most provocative part of this movie happens when one of the white social clubs on the campus throws a uh, gangsta-themed party. And all these young white privileged folks show up in fake dreadlocks and acting quote-unquote gangsta, and it kind of sets the campus ablaze. And yes, you could say that's well, it just happens in the movie. But while the credits roll at the end of the movie, we see that this is not fiction. Picture after picture after picture of majority white fraternities, sororities on actual campuses and actual schools where people took pictures having parties in blackface. This movie is about serious stuff. This movie is provocative. It doesn't give us any easy answers about race and racism, identity, power, and privilege. I enjoyed it. And, not but, it made me very uncomfortable. The title notwithstanding, this is not a movie about white folks. Dear White People refers to a radio a podcast that Samantha puts on that addresses many of the ways in which white folks misperceive the lives of black people. Black lives are consumable, fashion statements, cruel jokes, such as in the party. But often black lives are not seen on that campus. This is not a movie in which white people are the heroes or the center of the story. What this movie engages in is something, a phrase that you may have heard of before. It's called decentering whiteness. That white folks are not the center of it all. They're not the reference point, the norm. And, you know, if you never heard that before, you might, well, maybe you're a little skeptical. Maybe you're wondering what that's about. Maybe you just don't get it. Well, let me tell you a little bit about an experience I had that was about centering whiteness. I had uh, a couple of my friends good friends they're from seminary many, many years ago, and their son, my godson, come to town. And, you know, I've been here 10 years. I haven't been to Liberty Bell once. <laughs> friends come into town. Son wants to see the Liberty Bell. We go to the Liberty Bell, Independence Hall. And if you've ever been on that tour, you know, it's kind of an august place that you're in. And the park rangers try and keep it lively. 
jokey, actually, more than lively. And at one point, they're talking about, you know, the Constitutional Convention and being gathered there and writing the Constitution and how the Declaration of Independence before that was written. And the tour guide talked about, well, the northern states and the southern states, they had some difficulty. (laughs) This is like one of the rules I try to follow, folks. When someone says something isn't about slavery, that I can't mention slavery, it's about slavery. (laughs) And then she said something like, and then they came to a compromise and moved on. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that didn't sit well with me. Tour guide was white. The majority of the people there were white. So this is how I tried to live into that space. What if my skin was the compromise? Because that's what she described there and just quickly moved on. Yes, the documents forged from that place made possible this amazing experiment in American democracy. And also, yes, simultaneously, those documents enshrined into the power of law and even more into the power of our culture, white supremacy. Black people were worth three-fifths of a white person. Now, one of the cool things about what's happened at Independence Hall and Independence Mall, if you've been there recently, is that there's a whole display now featuring the stories and the lives of the slaves, of all those famous people who we call the founding fathers or the founding parents, if we want to be more open to the reality of those lives. You can go and read about their lives, these forgotten lives, the lives that are not told very often in the stories that we hear about the founding of our country. This, I think, is necessary, needed progress. Because let me tell you about how I heard about the stories that were left out of the founding of our country. This is how I heard about the story that was left out of the founding of our country. If you were a child of the 70s, you might remember Ben and me. Does anyone recall that? Ben and me. I can't even remember the name of the mouse. But it's this plucky little mouse who comes along into Ben Franklin's life and helps him to do all the great things. And then Ben Franklin kind of forgets about him. So the mouse heads off on his own. And eventually they have a reconciliation towards the end of Ben Franklin's life. And now finally the story of the mouse can be told and the importance and the centrality of this mouse in the founding of the American Republic. I believe we should tell better, bigger stories about the truth of who we are. But they ought to be real stories, right? Sometimes this telling of real stories is reduced to what some call derisively revisionist history. The stories we tell should be about things that actually happened. But revisionist history also goes by another word. When it's about things that did happen history. They're about including the lives, the stories that so often are not told, not seen. I mean, that word revisioning is a powerful word. Revisioning. Being willing to look again. 
and see what we did not the first time. Revisioning. It is centrally related to what is really the, or the opposite of, really the only universalist sin there is. And by sin, I don't mean something inherent to us that we're born originally broken. Really the only universalist sin there is, which is making another person, another people, into an alien, into a stranger, into someone or someones who somehow are outside of our lives and our history. What that costs us falling out of alignment with this deep part of our spiritual tradition, it costs us an authentic relationship to all of these values that are so dear to so many of us. Compassion, kindness, love, integrity. And what is absolutely true over and over again, I, li- I love that we live in an age in which this has been demonstrated in all kinds of social experiments. That degree to which we hold power within a system is the same degree to which we will not naturally or habitually look at the lives of those who possess less power. I mean, it's true in made-up, rigged monopoly games. <laughs> it's true sometimes according to the kind of car we drive. If we think it's a better car than the other people around us. And it's also true, yes, in terms of the stories we hear about who's central in those stories, who belongs, and who doesn't. There's a guy named John O'Donohue that some of you may know. He was, he died young, unfortunately, an Irish mystic, a contemplative teacher, who, like Thomas Merton before him and Thich Nhat Hanh, as Thich Nhat Hanh is blessedly still with us, teaches from a place of recognizing that cultivating the inner deep awareness within us is not at all about turning away from the world out there. In fact, if we really want to change the world out there, we first have to begin with changing the quality of our perspective in here. John O'Donohue wrote this. He said, part of the understanding of the notion of justice is to recognize the disproportions in which we live. It takes an awful lot of living with the powerless to really understand what it is like to be powerless. To have your voice, your thoughts, your ideas, and concerns count for very little. To engage that means sometimes facing. As sadly I didn't face back in seminary about 20 years ago. It means embracing something that some of you may have heard about. Something that those of us with white skin may experience. It's called white fragility. A fragileness when we're talking about race and racism, power and privilege. Fragility shows up in all kinds of ways. It may mean simply saying, I don't want to engage. Those conversations make me uncomfortable. It can also show up in this way. The fragility that says there's something wrong with now. The fragility that says, let's imagine a time long ago. If we could only get there, back there again then everything would be okay. That's why it's so important to tell honest stories about back there. Is the back there that we want to go to the time of slavery? Is the back there that we want to go to the time of child labor? Is the back there that we want to go to the time of Jim Crow? Is the back there that we want to go to the time of madmen and rampant sexism in everyday life? 
white fragility or any kind of moral fragility. This stepping out, this stepping away, this stepping back, this refusal to engage costs us. Costs us individually and costs us collectively. I think there's a better way. A better way. And this is one of the teachers who I trust in these moments. Renee Brown, who has been so important and continues to be important for so many of us here at Wellsprings. Brene Brown, who offers the opposite to fragility. Vulnerability. Vulnerability, which says, and I feel it still within myself, it's okay to not know. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel like if we enter this space of these conversations about race and racism, identity, power, and privilege, we might misunderstand people and they might misunderstand us. Go and engage anyway. Because in fact, our vulnerability is our strength. Our vulnerability opens us up to each other. Our vulnerability means that we can be uncomfortable, but comfortably so. We can be all right. It means that we can be willing to take a look at something like this that happened this past week and see that something's missing there. If you show that next slide. This is an amazing thing this past week. Maybe some of you saw it on Facebook and social media. Celebrate the 90th anniversary of American women's right to vote. Powerful thing in American history. That's not right, though. 90 years ago, not all American women got the right to vote. White women did. This is that both and of telling our story honestly. Yes, This was better than what came before it 90 years ago. But it wasn't final. It wasn't it. We have to tell our stories more honestly. It means engaging our vulnerability. It means sometimes stepping right into the middle of it. Remember a number of years ago, I think it was at a family large dinner. Let me give you some context here. Uh, FDR came up. To my generation... Uh, excuse me, to my grandparents' generation, progressive Jews in New York City, FDR was a saint, an absolute saint. The man could do no wrong. And I piped up, or more peeped up. (laughs) I think it's important to remember that FDR also engaged in ethnic cleansing. The rounding up of people of Japanese heritage in this country, regardless of what they did, most of them did nothing. Almost all of them did nothing other than being Japanese. Took away their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This was not received so well around the dinner table. (laughs) It doesn't mean I was wrong. Fragility, yes, is also, and I've heard a lot of white folks do this over this last year and a half, immediately hearing the phrase, black lives matter, and coming back, well, all lives matter. Just immediately shutting that space down. All lives matter. Or what about violence done by black people? In that space of immediately shutting that down, there's no room to wrestle with the legacy and reality of white supremacy that's part of this country. 
And by the way, this is the best answer I have ever heard to why black lives matters matters. It goes like this. Jesus didn't say, blessed are you poor. And all the rest of you as well, too. (laughs) Jesus, whatever the failings of institutional, organizational, the history of Christianity is, whatever those failings are, and they are real, Jesus preached an unconditional love for every human being, every part of creation. But Jesus didn't say, blessed are you poor, and everyone else, too. He said, blessed are you poor. Because he wanted to point out where love was not made most manifest. Where love was not real. Where those least of the brothers and sisters, least of our siblings, were forgotten. Embracing our vulnerability instead of our fragility means recognizing the truth of our stories. Our stories together, our stories alone. Sometimes in embracing that vulnerability, we can feel like it's all falling apart. (laughs) But if we remember our values, remember what's at stake for us, particularly remember the universalist part of our tradition, that all life is bound up inextricably with each other, we will remember what's at stake for us. And there's something else as well. We can remember that we don't have to be alone and isolated in this work. You heard Mick at the start of our service talk about our service trip to Haiti. This is why I am going and why I invite you to consider being a part of this trip. I've never done anything like this before. I'm a little scared by it. I don't know what to expect. And I'm also realistic that one meaningful week of service in a part of our Western Hemisphere that has so routinely been forgotten about and suffers so greatly because of poverty and the legacy of white supremacy, one week of that by me does not make me a guy who gets it. And it doesn't mean we get it. Again, whatever the it that it is to be gotten, it means that we care. It means that we are willing to revision our lives. It means that we're willing to take seriously cultivating wider hearts. One of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings is this. The burning bush is blazing everywhere. This is about that willingness to tell a wider story, grow a bigger heart, connect our hearts with other hearts. This is the heart of our tradition, that revelation is unsealed. The universe is always offering us wisdom. The single perspective, the official story that leaves out so much, For all time, it's a lie. And it's a recipe for living a stuck life, individually or together. And we already know this, right? Like, they make kids' movies about this. 
The moral of the story is that living frozen is unhappy, right? We don't have to be frozen. We can tell a bigger story. This is the best and greatest news of our tradition. A God beyond our imagining, a love that welcomes us home, a love that challenges us to see what we have not seen. This is the best news. Creation is a verb. We are a part of it, not separate. And the universe is not done with us yet. Amen. May you live in blessing. I invite you to join your heart with mine in prayer. God, beyond belief, beyond boundary, simply beyond. May we invite ourselves to learn to perceive what we had not perceived. May we invite ourselves to learn to love what we had prior deemed unlovable. May we invite ourselves to remember, to remember, to put back together that which in our own pain, our own laziness, our own sometimes just not paying attention, may we remember that which has been forgotten. Remembering this most profound truth. That for love to be real. Love is for all. Amen.